Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman. On today's show, I've got William Tincup, the man, the myth, the legend. He's here today to talk about startups, entrepreneurship, and also a little bit of art and a little bit of pop culture. If you want to hear about fixing tech companies and making amends for toxic male behavior, sit tight and I'll be right back with more William Tincup and Let's Fix Work. Work is broken. So is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is breaking things down so you can put them back together and make work something you can enjoy. Let's fix work together. And now with the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hey, everybody. Lori Rudiman here, and I've got an awesome guest today. He's my friend, maybe my mentor. I don't know. I don't know if I'd use that word. I guess that's fair. And just an all-around nice guy, William Tinkup. William, how you doing? I'm doing great. And don't tell anyone I'm a nice guy. I've got a great reputation going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's right. Well, listen, uh, we've known one another forever, and you know about technology. So why don't you tell everybody how easy it was for us to get on this podcast today? <laughs> you know, I think it took, what, 30 minutes? Uh, can, you, can you hear me? Hello? Can you hear me? Is the camera working? Uh, oh, man. No, of course. Yeah. You know, whenever you think you're you're good at technology, life has a way of humbling you, putting you in situations where you're like, no, no, I'm still in third grade. That's right. Yeah. Great. Well, I'm really glad to have you today. We are going to talk about how to fix startups. So go mm-hmm. do it. Tell us. How do we fix all startups? Them. Just all startups? Oh, uh-huh, yeah. Every startup ever. Good. Done. Go. I know you work a lot with startups and you see themes and you know startups are broken. And we both know the statistics, something like 90% of startups fail within the first year. And we know that firsthand because we've worked together on startups. So, you know, we're in a place in this world where everybody thinks that being an entrepreneur and a startup is sexy and glamorous. So I wonder what, what are some of the early mistakes that startups make? Like, do you have fewer than 500 you can list? Yeah, I think, first of all, you think of a startup, you think of bands. So imagine <laughs> yes. if we were going to put a band together, are we going to do ska? Is it going to be a classical? Is it going to be a classic trio? Like, what What are we going to do? We're going to do Nine Inch Nails covers. Done, done. Okay. But if we could do those with a violin, a cello, <laughs> and a snare drum. Great, done. Go to that bridge. Yes, please. So that's do that. essentially the dynamic that works in bands or doesn't work in band. One of my favorite shows on VH1, Behind the Music, it was always about 20 years after they were relevant to anyone. And it always starts with they did a lot of cocaine and <laughs> yeah. there were mistakes that were made. Right. Bobby was an asshole, you know, whatever. Oh, man. And now they're all rich and unhappy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're totally, no, or they blew the money. MC Hammer. Oh, yeah. I had a lot of money. Now I blew it all on uh, really nothing. Don't have anything to show, but it's the dynamic of a band. And so what can possibly go wrong in a band? Well, you've got ego. You've got what happens with trappings of success, trappings of failure, all the interpersonal stuff. The easy thing that I tell you know founders and co-founders is it's another marriage. So you really have to think of yourself. If you're not married, great. This is your first marriage. Fantastic. Enjoy. If you are married, you're getting married again. And so all of the things that can go right or go wrong in a marriage also go right and wrong in a business. It's no different. 
you and I talked about the universal forces of failure quite a bit a couple of years ago. And I don't know if you remember them. I only remember a few, but one of the ones that sticks out to me as you're talking is communication, right? I mean, that's got to be one of the highest reasons or the most frequent reasons why companies fail or they fail to even launch. That's what I think. Well, in communication, it's the stuff that's internal and external, right? So internally, you have a partner. How do you kind of carve up the world? And the partner does something, you do something. And if you do it really well, and all of a sudden a light shines on you, and externally you get credit or awards or, God forbid, you travel the world and speak or whatever, well, now you've got kind of an ego to manage in your partners. It is communication. It's communication externally, like inside you know, the clubhouse, what goes on? And then outside the clubhouse, how do you manage how other people perceive you? Yeah, yeah. Like so, yeah, you're right. A lot of that is communication, but a lot of it's also, it's not articulated as communication. Someone has a great idea and they go and do it. It either succeeds or fails. Or you talk about it to death and then you never really execute because you're trying to make everyone happy. And that's one of the difficulties of being a founder is sometimes you have to be a dictator. Yeah. And yeah, uh, no one wants to say that. No one wants to kind of like, oh, yeah, well, Castro had it right. Um. (laughs) Well, he did actually at points. (laughs) Well, wait a second. You've been a part of successful businesses, building your own, building your own brand, and you've done it both on your own and with partners. And so I think when I talk to early stage people who have an idea and they're fleshing out their idea, they don't really think about a marriage. They don't think about going out on their own. They're just consumed with the idea. Idea, right? They're just passionate about the product or the service or whatever they want to offer. So how important is it right away to figure out if you're going it alone or if you need people? Like, where do you make that decision in the decision-making process? Well, two things come to mind. One is core, not core. So let's say we're going to build a technology and it's going to do X, Y, and Z. And we just have this belief, a passion, and we're going to take it to market. Well, if we don't have a technologist around us, or we're not technologists, we've got to have a partner that's a technologist. That can be said of any of the things that aren't core. So let's say you're really good at finance, you're going to need someone that kind of balances that out with a liberal arts background, potentially, and that's good at sales and marketing, good at talking in front of others, whatever. Uh, let's say you're too heavily that way. Well, you've got a bunch of folks that are liberal arts majors. You can have a great philosophical debate, but you don't know anything about pivot tables, that you don't know how to build out financials or the technology. I mean, passion only gets you so far. It's important to have passion. I would actually say it's critical to have passion, but you know, the two failures around passion is you think that it's going to cover up your shortcomings. It doesn't. Or you fall out of love with whatever you were doing and you don't have the passion. And so then you've got to figure out either how to rekindle it or how to change the business to where you could be passionate about it again. But all too often, people think that they can just cover it up. I'm passionate. I love it. Well, you know, that's cool. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the market's going to accept you and that people will pay you money for your passion. That's so interesting, that take on passion, because passion for me is fickle. There are things that I've been passionate about throughout my entire career, whether it's a tech product or a haircut or the pair of glasses that I'm rocking right now. And like, year later, I forgot about it or I'm on to the next thing, right? And so when you see an entrepreneur with passion, just 
the general advice of, okay, make sure you build a business around that passion is probably good. But are there any warning signs that this passion is going to burn out? Do you see it in people where you're like, you're just on drugs? <laughs> this is a fact. Here's how you know that the passion is going to take over a percentage of your life is you can't sleep. That's when you know this idea. I can't, I have a moral obligation to take it to market. If for no other reason that I can't sleep, I have to do something with it. So if sleep becomes easy, you probably need to analyze that. Why is it I'm losing something or I'm not as engaged as I once were, or the business needs me to focus on something else. But sleep is a great indicator for whether or not you're really passionate about something or whether or not you've lost some of that passion. And if you've lost the passion, you can rekindle that. Like, I'm not worried so much about that because that's like a maturity model. You go through several stages with an idea or a business. So you're going to go through those things. Like, even people that have been married, my mom and dad have been married 60 years. And when I talk to them about marriage, it's like, you know, they think in years, well, we've had some years that were tough. It's like, <laughs> I know. I hear people talk like that where they talk about bad decades and it scares the hell out of me, right? We had a bad decade. That was tough. It's like, so it's relative. Okay. Not always going to be sunshine. You're going to have some times where things are just difficult, but it's supposed to be difficult. It's not supposed to be easy all the time. You're not supposed to be smiling all the time and happy and passionate. There's going to be times where you have to fight through it. I think that to some degree, the people that either can't find a passion, that they're not letting their self up to be vulnerable, which is one thing that's blocking, essentially, that vulnerability. Like, you've got to actually say, I'm going to put my life behind this. I'm going to mm-hmm. put my name behind it, my reputation behind it, but I'm going to put my life behind it. I'm going to move to Hawaii. We're going to do this bit. And uh, that's hard. I mean, that's vulnerability uh, at not a very comfortable level. So on one level, you've got to be vulnerable. The other is is identifying when you're addicted to change, which is true of a lot of us, that we are so good at consuming change that all of a sudden we built like this extra muscle where we can consume change and then we kind of expect it. It's like, it's been three months. Where are we at with that new thing? Like, shit, well, you know, not everyone thinks that way. No, I feel like you're picking me out of a lineup right here, William. Right. Well, <laughs> it's, hell, I'm saying the same thing about myself. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. If you're good at consuming ambiguity and change, the fear at one point is that you get great at it. And if you get great at it, can you ever settle on an idea and be vulnerable enough to say, hey, yeah, I don't need to change? I found it, it's here. We've done that in marriage. You know, but all too often, it's the people that either don't think about change like that, they don't consume change in that way, or they're vulnerable and they've let themselves open to just put their entire life behind an idea. Yeah, that's really, really good. And also now I feel like I need to take some Prozac (laughs) on the carpet. Well, as long as you snort it, that's right. Exactly. Right. And put something else in it. Well, listen, you know, when I talk to founders, they're all over the map, right? And I'm so excited because we're going to go to the HR tech conference in a few weeks. And we're going to meet all these people who are excited about their companies. And they're going to introduce themselves as the founder of Zordop a new technology, right? <laughs> or the founder of Zanschlieb. I mean, just really <laughs> insane name. So I seriously wonder what your thoughts are on naming a company because I know you've named companies before. So how do you name a company in 2018 when you have to find the URL, the Twitter handle, the LinkedIn domain, all of that? 
like how impossible is it to come up with a good name? It's not impossible. It's art. So you've got the polarities and art of abstraction and realism. And so realism is, let's say you're, you know, a company that sources data scientists, you know, data scientists are us.com. You know, this is what you do. It's very realistic. People, you know, with an IQ of 70 can figure out what the hell you do for a living. Uh-huh, yeah. It's easy. And to your point, it, but it's the difficulty is actually in the social properties, of the URL, then it becomes kind of a game is, can you buy them? If they're available, can you get them? If they're not available, can you buy them? And that's realism. It's hard, 20 years after the internet started, it's hard to find some of those things, if not all of them, together. And you want to create consistency between those things. So you, you really want the website and the Twitter handle and the Facebook URL. You want all those things to be the same. Yeah, I, I agree. But then you end up getting stuff that doesn't make sense and sounds right. like a pharmaceutical concoction. Yeah, Korean porn, whatever. <laughs> Are there best practices around naming a company? I mean, besides getting all of the URLs lined up and the social properties lined up, do you like to pull from art? Do you like to pull from fiction? Like, if I'm a person out there who's created a new recruitment marketing platform, how do I name it? So, if you go the route of abstraction, you look at a lot of companies that we interact with Amazon, Google, Yahoo, just pick any of these names, and some of the names we'll see at HR Tech. They're made up, they're a combination of word. It's the Latin and Cherokee word for so-and-so. <laughs> right. The thing is, is, as long as you can tell a good story and anchor it in people's minds around what you do. So the name is important, but it's not as important as them being memorable because that's actually what people are going to remember. It's like, oh, that's that company that does internal mobility. Will they remember the spelling of your, you know, half Latin, half Cherokee name, maybe not. But you have time to get them to a place where they will be, where it's just a game of repetition and being consistent and kind of saying the same things over and over and over and over and over till they get it. Because that's what Yahoo did. That's what Google did. That's what any of these companies have done. They've just, I say brainwashed, that's kind of harsh, but they've just gotten us to an understanding of like, oh yeah, yeah, but Google, that's, that's what that is. Yeah, Google means nothing, right? It means, yeah, it means less than nothing. So the hard part in naming is being memorable. Hmm. And so I think that some of that's color and font and iconography and imagery and all that other stuff. And some of it's just being able to tell a good story. Yeah, yeah, I like that. And being able to anchor it in people's minds, like, this is what this does. This is why it's important. And some of that gets back to, you know, not being an ass, like, being likable and the relationship between likability and compelling. So it's one thing to be compelling, but if you're compelling and no one likes you, who cares? And if you're likable, but you're not compelling again, who's going to remember who cares? So it is kind of a game in being both likable and uh, compelling simultaneously. And that's what creates memories for people. Essentially you're in the business to create memories for people. Can you tell us any of the companies you've named? Are you allowed to talk nah, about that? No, nah, I'm under ah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the thing is, is if a company doesn't believe in it, it's DOA. Yeah. Like salespeople are a great kind of an indicator. If they don't think they can sell it, like you go around, you got three names and you get people's advice, and, you know, internally kind of shopping. If the sales team or sales leadership can't sell it, it doesn't matter what you do. 
because they're the ones on the very, very front line of being able to take that and make it memorable and convert memorable to sales, to revenue. If they can't do it, then just literally pull that plug, go get another name. You know, you're so right about that. And unfortunately, we let far too many decisions get made by salespeople. I mean, that's an unfortunate reality of the business world. But when you and I were working on Glitch Path, the number one piece of feedback I got was, boy, that name is really good. <laughs> like that tech platform needs some work and that pre-mortem is not a great idea. But boy, that name, that name could be anything. Yeah, That was a good brand. Actually, the iconography and colors, that was actually just really well done. Yeah, yeah, we had some good partners. Sometimes it happens that way. Sometimes oh. you get that part right and you fail somewhere else. Yeah, like on our core product. Yeah. <laughs> All right, <laughs> so we've got the drive. We've got a good name for our company, right? We're still mm -hmm. an early stage founder. I think people skip over stuff, though, in building a company. And you and I actually talked about this when I was a founder and a CEO, and it really stuck with me. You talked about how people skip over culture and rules of engagement when they're building a company. They just fly right past that. And I wonder why is it so important to get that right? And, you know, if I'm driving to get my name out there, does it make sense to stop and focus on your rules of engagement? It's kind of a game of hard science versus soft science or art and uh, chemistry, if you will. If you look at art, at the very end of art, once you've studied it enough, you get to a place where you find out that art is all about science and technology and chemistry and all these hard sciences. And when you get to the end of any of the hard sciences, take physics or chemistry, what you find at the very edge of that, at the end of that, is it's all art. So the answer that you seek is not really one or the other. It's typically, if you have founders that came up through the soft sciences or liberal arts, then they're not going to give a lot of credence to the hard science things, like product and engineering and finance and some of those types of things. They have difficulty because it's not just a blind spot it's easily relegated to not important because you can rationalize all the things that are important because those are all the things you love. It's true of like you and I have interacted with a lot of founders, mostly male, that are scientists or engineers or technologists. And, you know, all they care about is the product. Yeah. Or exiting, right? They just care about getting to that number or get whatever it is. right? <laughs> but that other soft stuff in the middle, they have no time for it. No time for, no inclination, no desire to learn, none of those things. Yeah, so yeah. the thing is, is it happens on both sides. So you can focus too much on culture. I mean, yeah, well, we have a great culture. That's fantastic. The dogs are accepted at work, whatever. Do we have a viable business model? Do we have a financial model that makes sense and is flexible enough for up and down economies? Probably not. So if you're too focused on culture, it's at the expense of something else, typically hard science, whether or not that's product or engineering or technology or finance, it's any of the hard sciences. And if you're focused on the hard science because it's where you came up, then your blind spots are all the thing HR. I mean, to some degree, it's all of the things that liberal arts majors would probably understand better. Yeah. And so it's both. You have to actually either you or you have to do it as a team or advisors or board You've got to literally look at the entire business, hard and soft science, and then say to yourself, how do we apply rigor and innovate in all of these areas? Not just one, but you have an innovative product. You don't have any sales or marketing or support or any of the other things. You don't have the right people in the place, but you have a great product. Again, so what? It's a tree that fell over. No one cares. 
You got to be able to do it all. Well, I remember when we were launching Glitchpath, and it was so amazing to see you roll out what was just a blueprint, a checklist, right? These are the core things that you need to do when you're launching your company. And it was everything from, you know, get your licensing in order and make sure you've got your intellectual property locked down all the way through, have a conversation about how we fight. <laughs> I remember thinking like, wow, that is like not something I would have ever thought about having as we built a company. And it turns out that was probably one of the most interesting developments in my journey as a founder, learning that people fight like shit. You know, I mean, I know people fight like shit in a marriage and I know they fight like shit at corporate America, but I thought, oh, a bunch of people who are coming together for a product, an idea, we're going to be so lofty and we're going to be better than this. No, we weren't. We fought like shit. You fall in the same trappings because couples fight typically over four things, finance, family, sex, and chores. So distribution of labor. Young in a business, you typically fight over the same types of things. And it's not just the fighting and how you have a mechanism to fight. It's the reconciliation that's the most important. Like within my marriage, one of the things that's important to me is I don't go to sleep mad. So, and Michael and I, we've stayed up. <laughs> I believe it. Yeah, you got two boys. Yeah, you got stuff to fight over. Yeah, I don't want to leave the house mad. I don't want to go to sleep mad. So it's reconciliation. What do you do with the act of contrition? What do you do with reconciliation? And how do you apologize? How do you, you know, I always look for things because men are typically bad at saying, I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, that's a good idea. I was wrong. You know, like, like these things that most people are pretty good at or most women are pretty good at. Uh -huh. Men are yeah. horrible at it. It's like, if you're wrong, you're just wrong. It's okay. That you know, life will go on. Just admit it. And when guys can't admit when they're wrong, it drives me into a wall because it's such a blind spot. It's like you need to be able to recognize when someone else is right. And all too often, fights in startups are about turf or ego or stuff like that where it's very subjective. You have an opinion. They have an opinion. There's all these opinions. But really, there is no right and wrong. There's no absolutes. And so you at one point have to cop to, yeah, I own that. That's mine. I'm sorry. We should have shut this conversation down 30 minutes ago. I'm sorry. My bad. I love how it comes back to being a healthy adult over and over again, whether it's marriage or work. Well, listen, William, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what happens if you have survived your initial idea and you've got a team and where you go to validate and get some traction for your product. So everybody sit tight. We'll be right back with more William Tinkup and Let's Fix Work. Hey, everybody. It's Lori Rudiman here. You know I'm all in on the Let's Fix Work podcast. I want to deprioritize corporate interests, amplify good ideas, and help people fix work by fixing themselves. But I need your help. Please head over to patreon.com forward slash let's fix work and contribute to the podcast's growth. I need your help in building an infrastructure, growing the community, and making Let's Fix Work a permanent place for good ideas. Your donation is essential for the show's success, and any contribution would mean the world to me. Thank you again so much for listening to Let's Fix Work, and thanks in advance for your support. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Lori Rudiman, and I'm here today with my friend, William Tinkup. And William, are you ready for the second half? Absolutely. All right. Well, you and I share a love of art. You are very well studied in art, and I'm just like a passive observer, and I always love to learn from you. And one of the things that you mentioned in the first half is that 
art ends up being science and science ends up being art. And we share a love of someone by the name of Chuck Close. I mean, an amazing right. painter, but he's been caught up in the Me Too mo movement and moment. And a lot of people have come out and talked about what a piece of trash he is. And so yeah. I wonder, is it okay to still love and appreciate the work of Chuck Close, knowing that he's fully admitted to kind of being a dirty hound? Well, even if he didn't, I think it's things that we already know. I think, you know, the Me Too movement will go back in our history, you know, we're 90 years old and look at that as that's our Kennedy assassination. Is It's an important inflection point in human development, human history, is that men finally get kind of checked to the wall to where we understand we've failed ourselves, first and foremost. We've failed women in general. And specifically, we've done a lot of really dumb things. And it's good that it's coming out. We're going to have to go through a reconciliation. It's almost like, you know, after World War II, the truth and reconciliation stuff that went on. We're going to have to do that as men, all of us, every single man. Because there's something we've all done wrong. And it could be something that what would be considered benign by most men, interrupting women. You work with women and you hear them talk and you just talk over them or through them. And that's normal for most men. They just don't even consider it because they're just trying to get their point across or whatever. Well, but it's inconsiderate. It's actually, it's not healthy because the other person doesn't feel like they're being listened to. I mean, there's a whole lot of unhealthy things that happen there. There isn't a man on the planet that hadn't done that, period, in the story. True. Absolutely true. So how do we get to a point where we understand what's been done and to some degree, women forgive us because change happens. So I think all that is going to happen in our lifetime. And I think that's, you got to start with yourself. You got to start with all men. So when I look at Chuck Close, I think to myself, okay, Hall of Fame, basketball Hall of Fame, baseball Hall of Fame, football Hall of Fame. There's a Hall of Fame in everything in life. Yeah, there is. Yeah. Right. So there's a Hall of Fame of art. Okay. Or Mount Rushmore of art. And it's not just for the accomplishments of the art. It's also, you can separate that out, was was this a decent human being? And I think what you'd find is if you did that with most of the people that you would call heroes, you'd find that a lot of them are really good at what they do. Very few of them are actually good people. Yeah, that's so complex because that makes them not a hero, right? No, not necessarily. Because if you judge them separately based on what they did, their accomplishments, right? What were their accomplishments and what did you like about them? And everybody has a personal way that they kind of come to that. They can still do that for you. They can still be there for you in that way. But then you look at that layer, were they a good person? Were they ethical? Were they moral? Were they, you know, were they decent? I think Chuck Coase, for me, the art transformed pointillism and colorism. Yeah, absolutely. No one else has ever done and probably will ever do. Now, is he a good person? Do I want my daughter to hang out with him? No, no, I don't want that. But that's Ty Cobb too, by the way. Ty Cobb was a drunk and a womanizer and like go through the list of all, all the things that you don't want in a man. Ty Cobb was pretty much all those. Oh, by the way, he's also probably one of the best baseball players to ever live. Well, I was just thinking that about Kobe as well, right? I mean, you've got Kobe Bryant who absolutely admits to having, well, what he admits to is having an awkward non-consensual encounter with a woman, 
who never got a dime from him. And yet he's lauded as this great basketball player, which he is. But for me, he's a rapist. He's a piece of trash. Right. And I think the tension there is the definition of the word hero. That's right. We tend to lump people in and say, well, you know what? They make us feel a certain way. They've done great work in an industry. So we're going to look past them. We're going to take the Charles Barkley approach and not put this person up on a pedestal. But all too often, we're trying to make them perfect. And this happens, oh God, God, it happens in politics, right? And this is a bad time to have this discussion. Oh man, but Bill Clinton even, right? That's right. Bill Clinton, technically the first black president. (laughs) Yeah, he'll tell you that, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Again, like the the guy, the president, absolutely, 100%. Smart, Mm -hmm. surround himself with contrarians, smart people, like everything about him, loved him. Was he a guy that you'd like to model yourself around as a man? No, no, he had some really terrible habits and terrible thing, flawed character issues. But again, you're separating because the only way to do that is because if you do it, you put both those together. The problem that you have is no one's perfect. No one's going to be able to outpace you and do the things that are remarkable and inspire you. And oh, by the way, live a fucking perfect life. I'm not asking people to live a perfect life, but I am asking someone like Kobe Bryant. Not not be racist. racist. Yeah, you know, like, hey, Kobe, yeah. you could play basketball and not rape people. That'd be great. I think that's fair. I think that's a fair, <laughs> I think that's a fair statement. I have no issue with that statement. So we've deviated from the idea of startup. But hold on. There's a really important part there. Oh, please tell me. There's a line that everyone has. Like yours, in this particular case, is rape. Yeah. But what if he did check fraud? Would you feel the same way? Fraudster would be all right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Is he still your hero if it's check fraud? Yeah, I think check fraud's okay. Everyone, all of us are hardwired to have that line. Murder, rape, incest, whatever the bit is, we all have that line. And once they cross over that line, they can't be a hero. Do you think there's an absolute line? No, I think each person has their own line and it changes through life. So not only personalized, it's a constant change. (laughs) Well, all right. So Kobe Bryant, check fraudster, he should be that person. I would love that. That would be amazing. Listen, I want to talk about (laughs) all sorts of stuff, but I do want to talk about startups because, you know, we're going to be around probably a hundred companies the week of HRTAC at least, or maybe at 200 companies, right? Of people who have big ideas, big dreams, and they may get crushed. They probably will get crushed. 90% of them will get crushed. But for the 10% that succeed, I want to talk a little bit about that. At what point do any of these companies go out and buy swag? What's the point in which you say, okay, it's cool to buy some pens. It's cool to buy a t-shirt and put your fucking logo on it. When does that happen? So not all salmon make it up the river and not all sperm make it to the egg. So first of all, some of this is just as Simple as natural selection. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because sometimes you see somebody that a company or a person that you really love and it just doesn't make it. So we're going to have that too. Swag, the way that I kind of advise people around swag is real simple. Buy shit for yourself. Buy things that you like. Yeah, so I like that, that. At any given point, you can just keep it. Like <laughs> it doesn't have to go anywhere else. Buy t-shirts that you want to wear. You know, buy koozies that you want to drink with, like buy lighters that you want to, you know, light stuff up with, like whatever the hell the bit is, buy things that you like. And if other people like them, great. And if they don't, who gives a shit? What's your most memorable piece of swag that you've either created or acquired? Uh, Condoms. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) It was a picture of me, the Buddy William, 
with uh, me on a condom. That was, that's the last thing someone needs to look at. <laughs> Sorry to make this. This is not that's, video, but you should. Uh, okay, <laughs> it did automatically take you out of the mood right there. Like, ah, yeah, I can't you know. do this. That's good birth control. Yeah, it is. It's a form of birth control. Well, I remember your um, hangover kit that you made years ago. Yes. Yes, that was fun. That was well consumed. I had a bottle of vodka. I had some stuff for a Bloody Mary mix. It had a cigarette, a condom, some aspirin. Like we put all kinds of inappropriate stuff together and people would come and get it. And, you know, that made it home. Yeah. Yeah. What you want with swag is you want consumption. You want people to do something with it. The last thing you want to do, like people have pins. I still don't understand why people buy pins and put their name on it because unless it's a really good pin, like a really, really, really good pin, that pin's just going to get tossed or it's going to stay in the hotel room. Like, don't spend money on dumb shit. No. Well said. Well said. I think for me, I've got three pieces of swag that have stood the test of time. One is a modern survey hoodie. That was excellent. Yes. Excellent. And actually, the second thing, I've got a Black Book HR hoodie that was also very good. And it's just like somebody invested in really good hoodies, good material. And then the third thing is I got Ken a t-shirt from Q Social. Remember that company? That's now. Yeah, of course. Whatever they are now. And he still wears that t-shirt to cut the grass. It's just a That's great right. t-shirt. So you're absolutely right. It's about quality and right. money on good things. I love it. Great advice. Irony is you want to create scarcity. Because, you know, simple economics, scarcity and surplus, right? You actually want to go and say, yeah, we only have five coffee cups. <laughs> you, know, like, you know, people will say, hey, I want a coffee cup. It's like, man, yeah, you want that. That's great. You have a desire and there's scarcity. Now we've got something to talk about. When it's too available, like, why would I want that? I know. It's so sad when there's like a booth and they're just throwing their stuff away at the end of a conference. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, no. That is, there's, well, it's, it's worse if you were to actually go and somehow and look at the hotel rooms, the trash. Because <laughs> <laughs> a lot of it ends up there. Like people will come back and go, oh, yeah, the flyer. Poof, later. That never makes it in the hotel bed. Such waste, such garbage yeah. out there. Well, listen, you know, I want to get rich with other people's money, right? That's my dream. I want to take somebody's money that they give to me. I want to have a good idea and I want to spend their money on my good idea and then go and exit and be a billionaire. Sure. But I think far too many people take money at the wrong time when they're developing, if they even get that opportunity, right? So what's your advice around getting money beyond friends and family? The best time to raise money is when you don't need it. So the goal is to service customers. So take the exit out of your mind as an entrepreneur and put it off to the side. Like almost like don't think about it because if you just build a valuable business and a business that's healthy in its relationships with its employees and partners and customers, then at one point someone's going to value that. That's just life. But what you don't want to do is build a company that's built for flip or built to, to exit because oftentimes it'll never exit. And if you didn't have the rigor to treat customers well and treat employees well, then you're going to be a company that's not exiting and actually a poorly run business. Yeah, that's right. Focus on the basics. Run your business as if it was a taco shop or a taco stand or a, uh, you know, food truck. And every day you got to hustle. Every day you got to go out, you got to get on the corner, you got to do your bit, you got to give them good food, you got to take care of them, you got to give them change. Like you just got to be great. And you got to show up every day and be great. 
And you know what? If you do that, it turns out someone else at one point is going to say, yeah, this is valuable. You know, that feedback that you just gave is so important because I think there are people out there who are listening who are dreaming right now of their big idea. And they really don't understand how hard it is and how easy it is to work in corporate America, get your paycheck, have your PTO, company picnic, put up with that bullshit and be able to put your kids through college, right? Entrepreneurship is a different game. An entrepreneur wakes up and says, how am I going to pay me today? Yeah. And a person who has a corporate job says, how is the company going to pay me today? And that's one of the main differences is you have to hustle and the hustle it never stops. If you want it easy, then you don't want to be an entrepreneur because there is nothing easy about being an entrepreneur. If you hear the story about the gal of a guy that had an idea, took it to market, and oh my God, billionaire, what you'll find in that idea is a lottery ticket. Like Fortnite as a game. Fortnite's only been around for a year. It's completely dominated the United States. Yeah. Everyone plays Fortnite. Okay. That's a lottery ticket compared to the other hundreds of thousands of games that have come out that wanted to do what Fortnite's doing, but didn't. Most businesses, you have to operate like you're not Fortnite. Like you're operating like this is barely going to get traction within people that I know and I care about. So how do you know that you have traction? What's a sign that things are going well? I mean, other than like, is it customers? Is it recurring revenue? What what is it? Absolutely. It's the difference between outbound and inbound. Early in the company, you got to go to your network, your friend's network, your family's network, your employee's network. You're just selling essentially to people you know. Yeah. At one point, you traverse that and people that you don't know, never heard of, never talked to, they reach out to you. And the moment that that happens, and some of it happens to customers. You do a great job with a customer. That customer is, you know, is sailing with another prospect. And all of a sudden, they call you and say, hey, heard good things about you. That's when you know you're treating people well and you're doing a good job. You're valuable. So traction is kind of a, an output of you still got to treat people well. You still got to do a good job. You got to be valuable. And in doing so, people outside of your network are going to find out. That's the hardest thing is getting out of your own network because your network's easy to sell to because they already know you. They're already predisposed to like you. Yeah, they say yes to you all day long. That's right. I put up with their social you know, media. And so you know, they're already predisposed to, uh, to like some of the things that you say or, or whatever, or not like. They've self-selected in or out. And so those are easier than people that have no connection whatsoever. Somebody in Amsterdam that has no connection to customers or whatever, they just found you on the internet. And for that person to go through a sales process and buy, that's consumption. Yeah, that's amazing when that happens. What a feeling. Well, you know, I think about companies out there that have traction and are growing and how they step in it. And I've heard you talk about a couple of ways that people mess their own companies up. And one is they don't care enough about implementation and customer success. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because a couple of years ago, you were on a real roll about this and were like an evangelist, quit messing up implementation and start focusing more on customer success. So has the market turned the corner on that? Were people listening to you or are they still messing it up? I think it's gotten better in certain parts, worse than others. It's uh, implementation is a subset of customer service and treating customers well. If you want a real kind of a moniker of what is adoption, what is training, what is communications, what is implementation, all these things is ultimately, do you treat your customers better than you treat yourself? And if you do, if you put them up on a pedestal, like the worst thing you can do with customers is demonize them. And it happens in subtle ways like, oh, you know that customer, they're a dick. 
you know, I don't want to be on that call. I hate that customer. Yeah, it happens all the time, doesn't it? That's right. What's happening there is a cancer. A cancer is growing that basically says our customers aren't important. And your customers is the business. That's the only business is customers. If you treat them well, even when they're irrational, even when they ask for free shit or whatever, like that's their role is to be irrational and to ask for free shit. They're customers. Of course they're irrational. It's still our jobs to treat them well. And I think that's the hardest thing to do is to look past some of the inadequacies or some of the random things that they ask for and to still put them up on a pedestal and treat them like, you know, you would, you know, treat them better than you treat your family or yourself or, or, or whatever. And when your employees deviate from that, carve them out. Don't let that cancer stay because you'll wake up and your entire firm will be anti-customers. You know, I have seen this happen and I watched it happen firsthand. And I have this theory that it starts, I mean, like with everything right up at the top. I was talking to a CEO, can't really describe the company because everybody yeah. knows who it is, but he told me he couldn't share any customer success stories with me, recent ones, because he only has time to talk to five customers a month and he's got <laughs> right? Five. And he's only called into customer meetings when things have gone wrong. And I thought, well, yeah. that says a lot about your company right there, right? That's, right. So, right. That's exactly right. So how does that happen? You've got a founder who one day is passionate about an idea and the next day is like, I only talk to five customers a month. How the hell does that happen, William? I mean, it just makes no sense. It didn't happen overnight. It happened over a long period of time. And they've gotten that person or people, they've gotten... They've gotten themselves to a point where they're numb to the negative part of a customer rejecting you. So sometimes customers choose another path, but rarely do they choose another path when you're valuable. You know what I mean? They choose another path because they think they can use their money in a better way and get more value. Right. But if they never feel that way, then they're never going to go anywhere. But if they do go somewhere, there's a called rejection and rejection management. The salespeople are better at rejection management than anybody in the world because they're going to get 99 no's and one yes. Okay. Well, when you run a business and someone says, our world is better without you, which is essentially when a client fires you, that's what they're saying. Yeah. Our, our world, our life, our existence is better with you, not in it. And that is a soul crushing. And I think that what you probably learn with some entrepreneurs, they just got numb to that. Yeah. Like it's soul crushing, so I'm not going to be available for that. I'm going to be, not going to be vulnerable. But at the end of the day, they don't have a great firm. It doesn't mean that they won't exit. It doesn't mean that they won't be successful, but they don't have a great firm. And the odds are, if you have a great firm, better things will happen to you. Again, it comes down to relationships. You treat everyone really well. Your vendors, you pay them on time. Your employees, you're not an asshole. You treat them well. And I think that companies have gotten away from that where they don't treat their employees well and they wonder why they don't have any loyalty or why they're not being innovative. It's like, why be innovative? You, you know, there's no love either way. No, I feel you. Absolutely. Well, I think about the companies that we're about to see in Las Vegas. And as we wrap up the show, I wonder what you're excited to see. Like I'm excited to go to Vegas because I'm going to do aerial yoga. 
And I know you want to come with William. I know you want. Yeah, I would worry about the rope breaking for me. So I'll probably watch <laughs> if the video of that. But <laughs> All right. All right. So you're not going to hang out with Cirque du Soleil people. But like, what are you going to do when you're in Vegas? What's like the point of you going? Are you excited to see anything? It's a great question. The reason for going for me at this point in my life is just relationships. I want to see some people. You know, will I see new technologies? Will I be inspired? And will it kind of re-energize me? Yeah, of course. But you don't you don't know the particulars of that because you got to let it happen. So I'll probably you know bumble around in the expo at one point and kind of bump into things. I think that's the best way to discover things is the randomness. Just go and make yourself available and you just kind of see what happens. I've tried it the other way where it's overscheduled and that doesn't work for me. Yeah. I think for me, I mean, I've already got some dinners planned. I've already got some activities planned and it's just going to be go make myself available for the friends because some of it, you just need to be there for people. And then for people that I don't know, you know, I'll be looking at the entrepreneur. I'll be looking at the idea and the market opportunity and all that stuff. But now at conferences, I have people trying to track me down. <laughs> so it's a bit like, where's Waldo? Yeah, yeah. I'm in my room at seven o'clock, right? Is that your? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting back to my room. I'm going to go hide. I actually bunker in at one point and hide, which hasn't always been that way. Well, so let's wrap this up with everybody understanding exactly where they can find you on the internet so they can stalk you when you're out on the road, right? I mean, that's the most important thing. So what are you doing these days? Are you on Twitter? Where are you spending your time online? I, If all the social media went away, yeah, what would I regret? Can I guess for you? I think Oh, you know what it is. It's Instagram, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Why is that? Well, it's visual. Well, I tend to kind of mix and mingle visual and some type of reference, cultural reference or something like that in some type of place. Like I'm, I'm playing with Instagram and some of it's just things that I find funny when I go through life. Like, you know, I think they're funny. And again, it's like swag. I'm not necessarily building a Instagram feed for other people. My Instagram feeds for me. And it's what I find funny. And, and you know, other people, it's great that they find it funny if they do. If they don't, again, I did it for me. Would I miss Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn? Nah. I mean, I, life would go on. Yeah. Instagram, I'd probably try to fill that vacancy somehow. Well, listen, William, it's been great to catch up with you. I can't wait to see you in Vegas. And we'll have your contact information, your cell phone number, your social security number, all of that in the show notes so people can find you. And any, you've been podcasting for a really long time. Any parting advice for me as a podcaster? Some guests suck. so uh what threw me off is uh people that can't for whatever reason be articulate like they're really interesting and compelling but for whatever reasons putting sentences together in real time is difficult i think pulling the plug on those things it's not a good experience they're not having good fun you're not having fun the audience is going to clearly understand and know that fun wasn't happening yeah Pull the plug. Don't be afraid to pull the plug. Yeah. I mean, even with people you know and love, it's like, hey, you know what? I'm not vibing. This isn't working. Why don't we do this? Let's hit the pause button. Go back to work. Go do your deal. I'm going to go back and do my deal. Let's circle the wagons in a couple months. When you become fucking interesting and articulate, you know, let's just, I think that is difficult. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Because you literally have to be real with somebody and you have to, you know, again, you're putting your friendship on the line. But you have to do that with certain guests because it's 
they just suck. I have not run some shows for that exact reason. Like I'll record them and I'll listen back and it's a hard no. And it may be me, right? I'm not drawing out out of someone or whatever it is. Yeah, I've had to do that. It's tough. But calling time of death. (laughs) Well, it is now officially 555, William. So time of death right now. I love you so much. I'm so grateful we're friends. And listen, I'll see you in a couple of weeks and we'll make sure that everybody has your information so that they can follow you online. Take care, William. We'll talk to you soon. And everybody sit tight. We'll be right back with more Let's Fix Work. Hey, everybody. You know I love to brag about my friends. I also like to listen to them. And right now I'm listening to Jennifer McClure, host of the Impact Makers podcast. Jennifer is connecting with leaders across all industries to figure out how to make a difference at work and in the world. Here's what she's got going on. I believe strongly that each of us has the ability and the opportunity to positively impact people through our work and through how we choose to live our lives. The truth is that you've already impacted people in this world, even if you haven't been trying. I love what Jennifer has to say. And if you like what you're hearing right here on Let's Fix Work, you'll love what Jennifer's talking about on Impact Makers. So go to jennifermcclure.net forward slash iTunes and subscribe today. Hey friends, hope you enjoyed the conversation with William Tinkup. Follow him on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram to learn more about his interesting approach to life. And while you're at it, connect with me at L Rudiman and Let's Fix Work. Let's Fix Work is a production of One Stone Creative. Audra Casino, Megan Doherty, and Gerson de la Flesh make the show sound great. Like what you hear? Subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast player and give the show a five-star rating. If you don't like what you hear, that's fine. But why are you even listening? So that's all for today, everybody. I really hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time, as always, on Let's Fix Work. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Fix Work. Wouldn't you love to get your hands on Lori's no-holds-barred, honest HR handbook for employees and pros alike? Download it for free at lorirudiman.com slash DIYHR. 